Hey, everybody, it's Carrie Champion, and this is The Brown Print, a podcast that offers solutions and guidance for the marginalized and those who feel left out. These discussions will act as a guide to mentor those in need of direction and also to inspire those who feel hopeless. We will move the needle forward and speak out on the issues by way of dialogue and telling stories of those who need to be heard. You're a funny man. Yes, you are. You're a funny it, man. man, and you just turned 40, so I'm curious, how did, how did you handle it? It's a big number. 40's the worst birthday. <laughs> it's, the wor- it's the worst birthday, because it's the only one where people project their own insecurities onto you. Oh. When you're 35, it's keep going. When you're 45, it's you look good, but when it's 40, it's like, so what's going on? How you feel about life? <laughs> <laughs> it's the only birthday where everybody turns into your supervisor calling you in for an evaluation. <laughs> So how do you feel about your time here on Earth? Have you enjoyed what you've accomplished thus far? I'm like, look, man, I just want to have a little whiskey and eat some birthday cake. (laughs) I need all this life pressure. Roy Wood Jr. is a funny guy. Many of you know that. But what I didn't know is that he's a fellow journalist, at least in my opinion. To be in this line of work as a comedian that started way back in 1998, you have to have an original perspective on so many different things. You've more than likely seen him perform on any of the late night talk shows, including Letterman, Fallon, Colbert, Conan, pretty much that circuit. He was able to hone his craft and took his broadcast journalism degree, along with his comedy chops, into countless radio and TV gigs until he landed at Comedy Central as one of the funniest correspondents on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Before then and now, Roy has put in so much time behind the mic and studied the craft to become the comedian he is today. He has countless specials, and of course, you've seen him on television shows. He's a perfect example of someone who took his natural abilities combined with what he learned in school to blaze a path for himself and create a role that was literally made just for him. So, without further ado, everyone sit back, relax, and enjoy Roy Wood Jr.'s Brown Print. Roy Wood Jr., uh, you say that we met uh, back in the 2014 years. I, was it 2014 or 2016? Because I was on, I think, I, I think that might have been a little later, but you were working at ESPN in different capacities. What were you doing? Well, I was coming in and doing like, this is back when uh, Jamel and Mike had his and hers. Oh, okay. And this is before it was, I would like come in and do stuff via satellite because they were back in Bristol. Um, and I was doing Sports Nation. It had to be before 2015. I'll put it this way. You were doing whatever came on after Sports Nation or before Sports Nation, if okay. I'm not mistaken. Because I would see you and I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, see you. But you know, you're just like, right. but your face says, I respect your journalism. <laughs> journalism, journalism. Oh, I fooled and, you. Oh, good. Okay, great. I like it. I like it. Journalism. I did first take uh, from 2012 to 2014, and then I did um, Sports Center from then on. So maybe it was around the sport, and then I did like a quick stint on Sports Nation. You know, you you bounce around a lot over there. So I did a quick yes. stint. So it was somewhere in that world. How was your experience when you got to you work on his and hers, work with Jay and Mike? How was that? I had a ball. I had a ball. Like I always, always, the thing that was dope about just being around ESPN was that that was still the original, how can I put it? That was the original first love. So my degree is in broadcast journalism. Ah. And so 
I come from a journalism family. My father, a couple of brothers, they've all in some capacity one way or another since like the 40s, right? And so the crazy thing is that it was Stuart Scott that actually got me to explore journalism because it was that whole, oh, he talks like me and cracks jokes about sports. All right. I think I can do that. Like I used to watch the Sunday Night Sports Center like a comedy show because I was literally breaking down the jokes and you could see where Dan Patrick and Keith Oberman were doing different things with the highlights. And then when the late games came in and they got added into the packages, you got new jokes later on in the day, later on in the night. So that was always, I don't know, that was always a cool thing to like strive to do. And then, you know, my life took a different turn. I ended up a comedian but then you still end up there in some capacity. I'm like, you know what? This is all right. Yo, this yeah. is what everybody don't know about ESPN. Yep. Hands down, one of the best cafeterias in the <laughs> history of networks. Second only to Netflix, because Netflix got all that subscription money. And I know and ESPN I, and got I Disney think, money. Is it, can you eat for free at Netflix? I'm curious, because that's really important. I ate for free, but they was also courting me. So maybe okay. that's a different situation. Okay, okay. Let me tell they, you something. That felt good. It felt I great, get why right? Women don't pay for dates. I I wouldn't want to pay for a date. That felt good. Listen, anytime I can get a meal for free, I'm telling you at ESPN, I'm not. They literally would hold you accountable for an apple for 45 cents. I have a story of security chasing me down for some hot chips, but I don't want to get into it. Great cafeteria. <laughs> Let's stay focused on the the task at hand. I'm really interested in what you said. And obviously people know what you do now and know who you are. But when you had such a um, a strong tie to sports journalism, journalism in general, uh, and the fact that you said Stuart Scott really got you into that, that's just a beautiful dream because he's he, it is for so many people, myself, everyone. You wanted to always make Stu happy. You wanted to get his approval, if you will, in this world. You talked about the golden years uh, at ESPN. You talked about guys that, quite frankly... I've gone on to do different things, but that type of uh, highlight reading, that type of sports reporting is long and gone. It's, you know, it's moved, I think, moved away from that. It's uh, rush, 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 Right, rush. right, right. It it was... Quick, 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 quick. Get it in quick to one quick. Yeah. Talk to me about when you attempted to do it or tried to attempt to do it and then said, no, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot. You know what broke my heart? So CNN Headline News used to do... Headline news in the 90s. I went. To, I graduated high school in 96, just for perspective. In those days, CNN headline news was the same 30-minute newscast over and over. And every two hours, they would add a story, take a story away. So the it just changed gradually as you went around the clock. But the sports segment was the one thing that was always different. And for me, the 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 four-headed horseman of journalism to me at that time, for me, was Stuart Scott. Fred Hickman at CNN Sports Illustrated, which was then a competitor to ESPN, a gentleman at Headline News named Van Earl Wright, hmm. and Jenny Mose, who would do oh. a lot of the offbeat. Jenny is my boo. You ain't even got to tell me, but tell the folks who listen and talk about Jenny. So every story that she did on Headline News was lighter. It was more fun. It was, yeah. hey, you got all that serious news, but let's talk about why the subway is going from gray to silver and how New Yorkers do it was that that weird like if, it was like if if Mickey Rooney had like actually took a chill pill every now and then and did something different with his journal I used to watch 60 minutes as a child I'm sorry 
I'm a journalism nerd. You, but I mean, and I'm loving every moment of it. I am sorry, but that's fine. Go ahead. That aspect of it, that was what was exciting to me was, wow, they're doing something different. Van Wright used to talk like this and then he would do the score and give you the score and go, good night, good night. And I was like, whoa, what the, what the hell is that? You're allowed to talk like that on TV? Yeah. Well, what the hell do I need to major in to do that? Because my father, just for perspective, my father was a civil rights journalist who started in the 40s and 50s, and he covered the Rhodesian Civil War. He was in South Africa during the riots in Soweto. My father was embedded with Vietnam soldiers, with black platoons during the Vietnam War on the front lines, getting shot at. He was Dr. King. Every dog bite, fire hose picture you can find, my daddy was there. So his journalism was much more upright and it was much more serious. And we are covering the black news and the black issues. And I wasn't that, I just don't have that stature, but I knew I was funny. I knew I was funny. Um, you know, I, when we were in Birmingham, which is where I grew up, I was never in the same school system for more than two years at a time. We moved to Birmingham from Memphis when I was in the second grade. And it was just a bunch of hopscotch until I got to high school. So humor was the weapon to keep from getting bullied, to keep from getting picked on. Um, and then when I started riding the bench in high school, I started cracking jokes during the game. Because it's your, when you're riding the bench, your job is to heckle the other team. And so that's what That's I did. the only job. That's the only yeah. job. So I would write jokes. jokes. I, I would, would spend, spend half, half the day, day at school, school writing heckles. heckles that we could chant across the field at the other team. And so if you could get the parents to laugh, that was an applause break. If you could break the umpire, that was a standing ovation. Mm. And so that was the goal every day. And so, you know, we, we always talk sports around the lunch table and that's when sports center started kind of hitting its stride in terms of what the big show was, you know, in the early nineties on Kenny Mayne, Charlie Stein, you know, the history. Mm, yeah. And so, that was that was when I started going, huh, that Stuart Scott made an LL Cool J joke yesterday. <laughs> and keep in mind, my father was a journalist. I had a brother who was an anchor at WVTM, Birmingham's number one NBC 13. <laughs> and a brother, author, I'm in Syracuse. And this is W Syracuse, New York, Buffalo, Schenectady. And... I'm just going, man, it'd be dope if I could make a rap joke while talking about baseball. Huh. And so that's when I decided to um, go down to Florida A&M for journalism. And then as part of the journalism requirements, you know this, you have to take a voice and diction class. You have to take a public speaking class. And one of the requirements of the public speaking class was improv. And so was to do, you know, an improvised speech, impromptu speech. Sure. And that was kind of the first bug. That was the first time I kind of got bit. You know, I, I, I have to whole... tell you, if someone's listening, I just I, it's a fascinating story. Um, but the synergy is so clear. Obviously, you grew up in a journalism household. You had a lot of connections. Your father was the regal journalist, the gravitas. You've had that with your brother. Um, but as journalism, in my opinion, as this fourth estate changes, you do have to incorporate personality. For so long, you've been taught not to. But that's why you mentioned Jeannie Mose, who's amazing. She had personality to me in her storytelling and her writing. It was amazing. Yeah. But in essence, what you do, you, to me, comedians are oftentimes the very first citizen journalist. 
you make these amazing observations and you make people laugh. Don't you think that there's a synergy there in what you've been able to do? Absolutely. I think the best comedians, the legends at least, are the ones that can either report on what's happening in the world from a perspective that only they could give you, or they report on what's happening in their own world from a perspective that only they could give you. And I think that's very, very, um, I, it's something I take very seriously. You know, it's, it's actually weird to end up on the daily show where you're at a place where the facts matter. The jokes <laughs> are the most important part, uh -huh. but you got to get your facts right, bro. Fact. Like you yes. can't just be up here, just making up stuff for the sake of a punchline. And I think if you're able to report on the world, then the next level is to make people feel something, you know, behind that story or know that this is attached to something. And I think that's why Richard Pryor is probably one of the greatest because mm -hmm. he was able to infuse his own life into what was happening around us collectively as a country. And that was always this bridge between the world and himself, the world and himself. And he could oscillate between it effortlessly. I think the only person to even come close to it since is Chris Rock's last Netflix special, Tambourine, mm. where he starts, you know, world issues, world issues, and then he brings it into what he's going through mm -hmm. in his own life and really focus the conversation on himself in a way that Chris Rock has never done before. So it was like this, as a comedian, I'm watching like, oh, oh next level achieved. Mm. And then as a journalist, I'm like, yeah, man, tell that truth. Make them people feel something. Let them know they're not alone. Right. Feeling the way they feel. Hell yeah, man. Do it, Chris. Like that, yeah. that type of excitement. But yeah, comedy is 100% to me akin to journalism. It's so fitting that we even began talking about journalism and your background. Tell me, as you realized when you were riding the bench that you were quite good at what you did and that was making people laugh, right? That's the bug and and the ability to to take what you knew, what you grew up with in your household with journalism, but be funny about it. When did you realize that or when was the moment, if there was one moment, that you were like, oh, I have it. I have this it factor. I believe everyone in life who's ever achieved some level of success knows, whether it be at a young age or they know this was the defining moment that allowed them to become whom they are. When did that happen for you? Um, I would I would have to say when I saw Ricky Smiley on television on BET's Comic View while I was in college. Um, because for me, the, the, the issue is this, I tend to operate from a place of fear, um, fear of failure. I, I don't believe that I'm good. I do believe that this could all be taken away from hmm. me at any moment. So I just don't need to be last, you know, what does I that just mean? Need to, I, I need to find one person that I know I'm better than who's doing it better than me and go, I can do it better than him. And hmm. that was part of the impetus. And when I saw Ricky Smiley, the problem with being from Alabama is that you are bred to believe from people from the outside that really this is the South as a whole, minus maybe Atlanta, Nashville, Miami, Memphis, New Orleans, like outside of that, 
They make you feel like where you are doesn't matter and you have nothing of benefit to offer the world. Country bumpkin, you a Bama, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. So seeing Ricky Smiley on TV, that was the first person from Birmingham that like, it because he wasn't an athlete. This wasn't Bo Jackson. It wasn't Frank Thomas. It wasn't Charles Barkley. Most people that come out of Alabama, they catch a ball of some sort. And I'm like, wow, this dude is from literally up the street from me and he's kicking it on cable. I can do this and he's good, but he's also from where I'm from. And so then that started the process of just studying stand-up comedy. I probably studied it for a year or two before I actually took a dive into it or more so pushed into the pool. But nonetheless, by the time I got into it, I understood the basic mechanics of conversation. And a lot of that came from the baseball games where we were doing all of the heckling. Mm. And so that's where the science, to a degree, I think comedy is, it's sociology and manipulation Mm -hmm. to a degree. You know, I have to know who you are. I have to know what you're into. And I have to figure out a way to make you think that I'm into those things so that I can then make you care about the things I actually want to talk about. And so, That's interesting. Wait, I have to go back because I you just dropped a gem that I think people who are listening, who are in this business or want to be in this business of what you do, what we do. Um, you said you studied comedy before you actually got dove into the you pushed into the pool rather. How do you study comedy? How does one go about doing that outside of watching your best or your grades? Well, I, I don't know what that is because there there should be a school again for and that. Again, and then you watch them on mute. One of the two of the funniest comedians on mute, three of the funniest comedians on mute, Martin Lawrence, Sinbad, Whoopi Goldberg. And Whoopi, if we're talking about stage movement, she's very much a minimalist, but she's more expressive and takes her time and milks the silence so much so that you know that this right here is important. So now it's more (laughs) impactful. Because I wasn't moving that much before, sweetie. But nah, I'm a bit. so like things like that, where you start seeing these different tactics that particular comedians would employ. You know, Martin Lawrence. You know, they talk a lot about Martin Lawrence and how he would always square his shoulders to the audience during a punchline. Mm. Martin is the opposite of Whoopi. Martin is like Cat Williams 1.0 when it comes to how he uses the stage. And how he would run all around the place and be sweating out the ass. And Sinbad, very similar in that sense. But Sinbad had the faces, man, just the facial expressions and where you knew what he was going to say before he said it. And it was still funny when he said it. And so I started doing that. And I got once I got into comedy. So so I'm 19. I'm in college. I get arrested. I'm still in jeans from Dillard's or I don't know if it was Macy's. You you're not allowed to steal. They reminded me of that when they called me. I thought you could just borrow them. I was gonna bring them back. (laughs) (laughs) It was homecoming. (laughs) And you needed some jeans. And you needed some jeans. jeans, Man, why you tripping, Mm -hmm. man? So Mm -hmm. that was that was a serious fork in the road where my life could have gone much, much differently for myself. And so in that dark moment of being on probation for that, that's when I started getting into stand-up. Because when you get arrested, you lose all your friends. So this concept of having people to please 
was immediately removed. The concept of fitting in was immediately removed. At this point, I'm right back to Birmingham, Alabama in the second grade, first day of school. I've been here before. So I'm not afraid or intimidated at the idea of rejection or not fitting in. So I would ride the bus. I would take the Greyhound to Atlanta to do open mics at Uptown Comedy Corner. And I felt more comfortable doing open mics outside of Tallahassee because I knew if I got booed, I don't have to see these people tomorrow. Tallahassee's too small <laughs> socially where you will see people again. Right. And so as I started getting into stand-up, what I, the, the biggest thing that I identified, at least with Black comedy, because at that time, this is 1998 at this point, where if you look at Deaf Comedy Jam, and when this is what I talk about like when you're studying stuff, I feel like Def Jam is an iconic era, more so than BET's Comic View, because before Def Jam, Black comics of that stylistic diversity did not exist on television. Most Black comics were very buttoned down. They were very Byron Allen, and they were very straightforward on television. Wait, and that's not a not wait, 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 wait. I have to ask that. Okay, wait. Say that again, because I, if I think of Black comedians that are, I don't know, the forefathers of of black comedy, they were very, um, very comfortable in their blackness. But you're saying on TV, on so television. not like a Richard Pryor, but on a TV, uh, watching him on TV yeah. every night. Yeah, but, I, but the, you only saw Hall of Famers on TV. So you had Pryor, you had Cosby, you had Whoopi when she would decide to descend down from the mountain. Red Fox, all of them are from album eras who transitioned into TV, breaking okay. new comedians in the eighties. Late night, that was the only way that was going to happen for you. So you had to pray that you got on Johnny Carson or you had to pray that you got on David Letterman. And the types of comedians that traditionally booked late night were far more buttoned down than anything that appeared on Def Jam when Def Jam kicked in the door. So, so like Byron Allen and, okay, yes, you're right. Okay, even you're Arsenio Hall to here. a degree, even though Arsenio definitely maintained his blackness within that, Arsenio was not Def Jam in that quintessential sense. In 1991, mm -hmm. even though his show was Def Jam, Arsenio was Def Jam, but stylistically at that time, 1985, like style black comedians, it wasn't Bernie Mac. It wasn't Martin Lawrence. It wasn't any of that because that wasn't Sinbad allowed fit? on TV. What does Sinbad you know? fit in Sinbad that? Fits, I feel like Sinbad fits somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. But Sinbad was also his own thing. He was just such his own universe. By the time Def Jam was coming out, he already had our specials. Which is wild okay. to think about just how long he's been doing doing it. That's that's one of my comedy Mount Rushmore's, but that's a conversation for another day. Okay. Um, okay. But but make this look, powerful point, because you you educate me right now, sir. Talk about Def Jam now. There were no two comedians on Def Jam, in my opinion, who stylistically were similar or had a high level of overlap if we're talking about the first couple of seasons of Def Jam, mm. because none of these comedians were influenced by anything that they saw on television. They came up in the Chitlin circuit. They came up in the underground. Also, in those days, there was a checks and balances if you dared to do anything that was similar to another Black comic. So you would get checked for that. Originality was the bare minimum to even walk up on the stage. And so... I didn't come up in that era. I came up in the BET Comic View era, which was influenced by Def Jam. And Def Jam inspired a lot more people to get on stage. And not everybody was as original. Not everyone was as inventive 
because you had something to copy. What would you be if you didn't see anyone doing it first? You would be far more original than if you saw other people doing it before you, if that mm. makes sense. It makes perfect sense. So when I started watching BET's Comet View, I submitted for two years in a row to be on BET's Comet View. You send a VHS tape of yourself and TV is very important. It's pivotal as a road comedian because that's the only way a club is going to think that you're worth putting on stage and giving $100 to do 30 minutes. So two years go by, I get turned down two years in a row and I go, well, damn it. What are they booking? What is it they want to see? And let me see what the hell it is they're doing. So I set for the next year. And in those days, BET's Comic View came on at nine o'clock and again at midnight on BET, five nights a week. So over the course of a season, you would see anywhere from 100 to 150 comedians. And I watched all of them. And I just wrote down the topics. Every time a comedian talked about sex, check a box. Every time we talked about being broke, check a box. And by the end of the year, I had a spreadsheet of the traditional topics that a lot of Black comics gravitated towards. And so it's hard to be different if you're talking about the same thing, but you're not offering a new perspective on that topic. So then the first thing I decided was, okay, if the goal is to be different, because being funny is enough. But if we're both funny, the differentiator is who's the most original. So then I'm going to pick topics that are completely different. And so essentially what I did was watch Comet View for a year and establish a list of topics that I'm just not going to talk about. I'm just, mm. I'm not going to talk about sex. I'm not going to talk about being broke. I'm not going to talk about ugly people. I'm not going to talk about farting. And that's not a knock on any of the comedians that do those topics. But for me, I look at those topics and I go... No one's going to believe it coming from me. I'm 21 years old. I'm 6'2". I weigh 170 pounds, much lighter than I am now. And <laughs> I'm a heavy dude now. But Everybody got the COVID pounds on. <laughs> you know, it's okay. But no one wants to hear a 21-year-old talking about getting some. Nobody's going to believe it. So I couldn't mm -hmm. do that. So it forced me into this world of authenticity. And when I look at what's happening with comedy then versus now, it's no different. You have to be able to take something that everyone else is relating to and find a different approach or come up with something different to talk about because it's a lot of noise out there. It's a lot of noise. What is the career lesson in that? Because you're dropping so many gems and, and you're trying to just speed right past them. And I got to make sure that I'm digesting all of this as the journalist I am. What is the career lesson in that? You, I, I thought you were about to tell the story where you wrote down all the topics and said, okay, I'm going to do that because that's what they're doing. But you purposely went the other way. What was your biggest takeaway from deciding to do it differently in an era where everybody was doing it the same? That originality matters. I believe that originality is just as important as being funny. And so it may, it forced me into that realm. I'm going to be honest, I bombed a lot of nights <laughs> trying to come up with other stuff. But the last thing I wanted was for you to hear anything that I say and you assume where I'm going based on the previous four or five comedians that have had something to say about this topic. Now, what I can do is come up with something different on this topic. What I can do is come up with an original premise, go into that. Then when I get into a topic that you may have heard about, 
the assumption, or at least my hope is that you will assume that I'm going to take you somewhere different from what you're used to in the stereotypical sense. And that was all I wanted for myself. It was never, you know, a lot of those guys were eating and they were paying their bills and getting a lot of fame and touring and doing very well for themselves. I just didn't want it for me. I just, I had to do something else. I felt like that was the only way I was going to be able to stand out, to be a comic in the South. And it's not just black comedy that goes on the mainstream side too. I didn't want to do a bunch of jokes about drinking and college football because everybody, y'all like Waffle House? Like, okay, that's fine. And that's a perfectly fine joke, but is it creating separation between you and the other people? Because at the end of the day, it's a race. I have a question. You're giving, I, I, I listen, they telling me we got 20 more minutes. I need two more hours because I'm learning talking. so tell much. Get out you tell them no rush us. Yeah. They mean, I'm kidding. They, 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 they know I love all to ask all these questions, but I, 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 okay. You create this brown print, which I think is fascinating. And you decide, and I'm calling it a brown print, how you're going to do it differently. No matter if I fail, if it, I don't eat, if I don't make a lot of money. When did you start seeing like a return on that approach? When did you start eating, being successful, making money with that approach and also being acknowledged for the brown print that you created for yourself? 2006 was probably a defining year in my career. Um, up until that point, you know, if I start in 98, I get, I get Showtime at the Apollo in 01. I almost get booed. I should have gotten booed, but I came off stage. That's a rite of passage, though. That's yeah, a rite of passage. I should That's have respectful. Stood, I, stood, I should have stayed out there and took my medicine. I still, I'm still owed a good boo from the Apollo. <laughs> I'm going to let him get it. Um, so I did, um, I did a couple of black shows. I did Star Search. I did Premium Blend on Comedy Central. 06, I booked the Montreal Comedy Festival, which is essentially the NFL Combine and the NBA draft all rolled into one for undiscovered comedians. From that, I booked David Letterman um, all in the course of a year. Um, five or six months later, I booked the new season of Def Jam when they brought Def Jam back with D.O. Hughley as the host. And so all of this happens in under 12 months. And that was when I sat back and I looked and I don't know the number of people. It's a, it's a stupid thing to be proud of. This is a stupid thing. Like I've I've done a lot of stuff that I will never brag about or hang my hat on, as they say. But I'm very very proud to say that I'm one of the few comics that has performed on Def Jam and Letterman. And two different audiences. And one of the jokes I did the same joke on both shows. Mm. Didn't goes change, back to the brown change originality. And so yeah. that, I don't know, man, like that's the one thing in my career where I go, okay, I'm on to something because I'm just talking about how I see the world and people are seeing me as me. They're not seeing me as just black or just white. I'm just like, I'm this guy with these opinions. And of course, my approach to my standup, especially if you look at my last two specials, it's very much pro-black. It's very much talking about issues that are affecting black people. Like that is, <laughs> that is the core 
<laughs> of the jokes to let black people know they're not alone and feeling the way they feel. And if you're not black, maybe you'll learn something about what we're going through over the next hour and chuckle along the way. That's always been the objective. But to be able to sneak it in like that, man, I just I just have tried my best to be nice to people. And that has always helped me. You know, during all of this time as well, I'm doing morning radio. And so I'm interning at a station in Birmingham and I work my way up to co-host. But essentially, if the gig is less than five hours from Birmingham, I drive back that night so I can do my job at radio the next day. And you're in your 20s. You don't need that much sleep. I'm sleeping in two, three hour intervals. Essentially, like I would drive back. Were you showering? Were you taking a shower? Occasionally. It depended on if there was a hotel arrangement. It's radio. Everybody's funky. Like that was the one thing the that rules, made the rules. me. Listen, I'm just yeah. being honest with you. You want the brown yeah, print or not? It, you did listen. I do. Because you're talking about two hours of sleep. I was like, oh, I know he ain't taking a shower. Because no, I've been I'm there before. You the just roll out of bed. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Go I didn't even go, go home. Ahead. I would come straight from the gig back to the radio station, sleep, get up. Do the show till 10 a.m., do post-production till 11, get back on the freeway. No brushing your teeth? No. And if there's no traffic, if there's no traffic, Miss Champion, then yes, I might swing by the hotel within 20 minutes (laughs) I got left and shower and clean my teethless and then go tell these jokes again. And so- My bad. Okay. (laughs) The growth in that, you know, it's just, it's interesting how things work when you're kind to people. Um, mm-hmm. a story I haven't told often, but it, I'd like to tell it here. So, so essentially, so I was doing prank phone calls in the morning and the prank phone calls, I was burning on the CDs. Like I, yo, I had an HP desk jet in the trunk of my Ford Focus and I was printing and pressing CDs in the hotel all day during the day. And then I would sell them greenbacks at the show after the show. And that was like gas money. That's just survival cash. And I was running into a wall with some of the comedy clubs where I had these TV credits. This is before Letterman. I have these TV credits, but they're still not, and eh, we're not sure about you. You have black credits. We don't know. Mm-hmm. And what I figured out was with a lot of comedy clubs, you have to have something to offer them of value. Knowing what I know now was about having an audience and creating an audience. And I should have paid better attention to digital media at its onset. And I would be a lot more further along. Um, So I sent my print call CDs out to multiple radio station DJs across the South. If you were a DJ in a city where I was not performing, you got one of my sample CDs and I will follow up with these DJs and go, Hey man, look, it's free content for you. Just say my name when you play the CD. And they go, okay, cool. And I'd let that marinate for a couple of months. And then I will call the comedy club and go, Hey, you should book me. These DJs are playing my CDs. Mm. And so the way that started happening so when I was in college, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of T.J. Chapman. T.J. Chapman was the CEO and head of Wild Style Records. And so Wild Style was no different than any other Southern rap label in in South in the 90s. They got artists. We're trying to get it. We, I got my artists opening for Trick Daddy and Luke. I'm sure you don't know anything about that because you are a sophisticated woman. I am so sophisticated. <laughs> I know nothing about Uncle the Luke, Luke the Uncle. 
I know nothing about Liar. Trigetti. So go ahead. So TJ Chapman ran this thing called a record pool. And the record pool, for the people who don't know, this is before the internet. DJs would meet in Tallahassee once a quarter and swap out CDs of artists that were bubbling in their area. And that's how local artists started inching their way around the region to get booked for shows, is that they would get added to mixtapes in other DJ cities that came to the record pool. So at the time, I was a student, student journalist. I thought I was going to try to write for Vibe magazine. I wanted to do album reviews. So uh, TJ Chapman comes to me. He goes, yo, man, I got an artist that I need you to write a review on. We don't get a lot of reviews. And if he gets a review anywhere, it helps us get reviews in other places. Would you mind writing a review of this mm. album, even if you don't like it? I go, cool. Write the review. I think I gave the album a B, maybe an A minus. I was very, you know, it was I was fair in the review. I never talked to TJ Chapman again after that for years. I graduate college. I'm having trouble getting my CDs to DJs. I call up TJ Chap and I go, yo, man, I got this prank call CD. I do prank calls. They do pretty well where I'm from. It, it, is it possible for me to come and be a part of the record pool? He says, you got to come down here. We got to talk face to face. So I drive five hours to Tallahassee and I meet Mr. Chapman at their Wild Style Studios. And he goes, put the CD in. He said, you say it's funny, put it in. And they're in the middle of a studio session. I put the CD in and it's one of the best prank calls that I got at the time. And TJ Chapman sits there stone grill for three minutes and 50 seconds and doesn't let out a single chuckle. Nobody in the room chuckles. It bombs miserably. And he goes, you drove five hours to play that for me? I said, yeah. He said, is this what you've been doing with your life since you left college? I said, yeah. He go, look, man, I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't get it. It ain't funny to me, but I owe you one. And they gave me a lanyard to get into the TJ's DJ's record pool meeting that night. And they have grab bags set up for all these DJs. And I took those CDs that I had and I put them in every grab bag. And over the course of the next year, I was on in like 30 or 40 markets and rappers were putting my prank calls on mixtapes. Um, people wow. were playing them on morning wow. shows. Wow, they were wow, wow. Everywhere. And that gave me more leverage than being on David Letterman when it comes to booking new cities and new clubs. Wow, wow. And that's because wow. I was just nice to somebody. You know what I mean? Like that. Nice as in writing, as in... By the way, that's a simple but more more often forgotten rule of thumb. I had Holly on and she said the same thing. She just tries to be nice, especially to the, the crew. But you, you're saying you being nice and writing that review paid dividends for you. Yeah, but it was symbiotic for me as well. I needed clips because I'm trying to get hired at Vibe Magazine or The Source or whatever the hell. So we both needed something. And it's just about providing value to another person. You needed something... I don't necessarily need anything more than that, but the fact that I was kind and that I wasn't some terrible person, even back when I was like 18 or 19, people people don't forget that. I saw him years later at the BET Awards and he still <laughs> he still remembered me. And he said, man, somebody emailed me one. I laughed at that one, but that one you played that day, <laughs> that shit wasn't hitting. <laughs> Do you consider yourself as of now, with all you've accomplished, the where you work, Daily Show, everything, do you think you are successful? 
I think I have attained some level of success. I live in New York. My family is good. You know, my girl is good. My son is good, you know, and that's a blessing. But it could all be taken away in a second. I'm lucky. I'm lucky to just be on a show where we have a host who don't mind shooting in his apartment. He could have stopped the fight back in April if, if he went Trevor Noah, if he wanted to, he could have went, yeah, all right, ain't no more daily show. We'll figure it out in March or something. Good luck. There's a lot of shows that didn't come back. Have I achieved something? Yes. Yes. But sustaining it. To me, that's the real success is making yourself impervious to hitting a couple of potholes, which you will hit. Now I'm even more nervous because it's been a long time since I've tasted failure. You know, I work hard, I bust my ass, but you know, people talk about the light at the end of the tunnel and keep going. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. For me, the light in the tunnel is the train coming to run me over. So I'm constantly Why? in the dark. Why? Because that's Why what, is that? Does that motivate you? It's what's gotten me this far. So I don't want to change that. Like that, like does that not seem dark to you, or it's possible. is that just how some people? It's possible, but that's what has worked for me. And you know, this mm-hmm. belief that if you only operate from the place of positivity, then it, mm-hmm. it. I will say that it creates it creates a hesitancy to celebrate wins. Like I see people celebrating things that I wouldn't even tweet about because mm-hmm. in my head all right, I sold a show, but I want that show on the air and I want it shot in Birmingham and I want to create a film and television diversity situation in Alabama so we can take advantage of all of these shows that are leaving Atlanta because motion pictures are pushing TV shows out of the preoccupied studio space. There's an opportunity right now to use my TV show to create a new infrastructure and create new jobs and new avenues of employment for people in Alabama. That's what I want. So I don't give a shit about just selling a show because in my head, that's the new mountain, you know? Whereas if you'd have told me 15 years ago, do you just want to do comedy week to week and pay your bills? I'd have been like, hell yeah. 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 You got to keep in mind, the only reason I started doing this is because I thought I was going to jail for stealing jeans. (laughs) So. And who would have, and, and basically now you could have just got community service. You'd have been okay now. Yeah. Of course. I mean, even and probably wouldn't even I'm thought kidding. twice. <laughs> no, this was Florida. They was gonna lock my ass up. They was coming. They're gonna lock you down. Okay. And so when you come from this place of this thing just being an escape that makes you happy, to look up and be able to say that you're able to feed your family from it, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But I also, in 22 years, 23 years of doing this now, I have enough perspective to know that a lot of the people that came out the starting gate with me have either quit or they're dead. Listen, so this is the last question, because when you talk about this, I don't want to think that that's dark. I want to think that your perspective on success and where you are is just different from others because that's how we started. You well, no, it's not original well, in terms of. 
I don't I don't mean it in a dark way. That's what I'm saying. I know you don't. I know you don't. That's why I'm all like in the outside looking in. I was like, that's kind of dark. But I'm thinking about this entire interview and how you've always even started with I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to be original. So for you to have a different thought process than the average person makes perfect sense. Does that make sense yeah, to you? What, yeah, I, what I, I just said? I understand that. I think, I just think fear, fear for me is an important ingredient into the efforts in which I pour into the ingredients in which I create my success. And ultimately there is nothing wrong with that. If you had to do, this was my last question for you. If you had to do it all over again, would you pick a different career? No, I would start sooner. It's the only thing I would do different. I would start it when I was 14, when I saw Stand Up Stand Up with Wally Collins on Comedy Central when my daddy upgraded the cable package. <laughs> it's the only thing I would have done. But I didn't even know that a comedy club existed in Birmingham. That was another world. We didn't even go to that side of town until Christmas time to holiday shop. So... The fact that there was a comedy club right there in town, I didn't even realize that till I went to school and then started Googling comedy clubs. Well, excuse me, back in those days. And started Netscape navigating. Uh, yeah, I was clubs. like Googling. <laughs> I was like, you weren't Googling. I don't even think you was asking Jeeves yet in 96. You were still being- Ask Jeeves, yes, I was two years old. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any advice? Of course there is. What's the most, in your opinion, most sage, most accurate, most honest advice you could give someone who's looking up to you and wanting to walk in your footsteps or be a comedian and live in this world that you're in? Figure out a way to be original and be very, very careful about inheriting the goals of your predecessors. You cannot achieve what they achieved by doing what they did. The way that they did it is obsolete by the time you get there. I I made the mistake of believing that television was going to be the way to get the show and get the sitcom and get the fame. I did Letterman in 06. That was two years after YouTube launched. That's where I should have been. MySpace was popping 06, 07. That's what I should have been focusing on. Look and see where the tech is going and wherever the tech is going. If you can figure out a way to make people laugh over there, then you're going to you're going to be in full control of your audience. And once you have an audience, you have the power and you're no longer waiting for people to ask. To, you're no longer waiting for people to green light and give you permission. You have the industry by the horns. This is by far the most equal or most level that the playing field has been for an entertainer versus the Hollywood system, you know, that it's ever been, but do not invest your goal. Your None of your goals should include stuff that people before you did. Roy Wood Jr., you have a fan for life, at least an intellectual fan. I love how well, you think. I you. love how smart you are. This was fun. I wish we could go two hours. I'm going to come back. You could, yeah. Well, you can also come back to. I have another show. You can come back to that show. I, I was already trying to book you. Cal knows I be trying to book people for this oh, other show that I what, do. Look, whatever. This TV show. Me and Jamel have a I TV know show. We be been on to put there. You on there. I know y'all. Okay, okay. 
everything okay, but okay. sports. You know, just shut up. Yeah, you know? yeah. We gotta sh- yeah, shut up and dribble. Yeah. Not really, but yeah, we I, right there. I see y'all, y'all got the nice carpet on that show too. We have nice carpet. carpet. They gave us an extra $10 for um, decorating. And uh, we live in our best black lives, <laughs> talking all kind of nonsense and feeling real free. Um, okay, before I go, let me seriously say thank you so much. This was one of my favorites. I really do appreciate you. You are a, in my opinion, a, a fellow citizen journalist. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Roy Wood Jr. has a really interesting way at looking at life, his career, his success. And as I do on this podcast, I'd like to give you some takeaways. Perhaps you think it was odd or strange. I know I did at first. But when he said that he operates from fear and failure. Now, that does sound a bit gloomy, if not negative or dark. But what it means, at least for him, is that it motivates him. He's constantly reminded that what he's doing could be taken away at any moment. And that, in fact, motivates him. It helps him to achieve success, be great. The light at the end of the tunnel is a train coming to hit you. I mean, immediately I thought, gosh, that's that's insane. But there's so much simple logic to the way in which he operates. And that's from fear of failure. Something to consider. Here's another nugget. I love this one. Start sooner. Start sooner. The moment that you get an inkling about something that really drives you to be better, to do better, go after it. He wished he started looking into comedy when he was 14 years old. He thinks he waited too late. I I disagree. But I understand the urgency when you want to be great. So always start sooner. As soon as you know, as scary as it may be, start sooner. And then last but not least, we don't talk about this enough in life, in business, in relationships, but use kindness as leverage. Think about that for a moment. He was always kind to everyone he came across, especially when he was coming up. But even when you've quote unquote made it, you still should be kind to people because you never know when that kind gesture, that kind word, that kind moment may work in your favor. For him, it was the record executive who said, yeah, you can put your mixtapes in our party bags. And as a result, that led to an audience that he says was larger than the one who watched him when he was on David Letterman. Just consider that for a moment. Being kind and using that as leverage in life, more importantly, in your career. Thank y'all for listening to The Brown Print. That was deep. I learned some things today. Let me know if y'all did too. Talk to you next week. That's it for this week's episode of The Brown Print. Let's keep the conversation going online. You know I love to go online. Follow us on Instagram at The Brown Print Podcast and on Twitter at Brown Print Pod. Follow me, Carrie Champion, on IG and Twitter. You can find me at Carrie Champion. Don't at me if you got attitude. Well, okay. We'd love to hear your feedback. Or if there's a specific topic you want us to tackle or guests that you want us to have on, please reach out to the brownprintpod at gmail.com. Again, at brownprintpod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. It helps spread the word. It is so important that we stay active and vocal. 
We'd greatly appreciate it if you showed us some love by leaving a five-star rating and a positive review. If you do not, I know you are a hater. Haha, <laughs> kidding, kind of, not really. Meanwhile, uh, again, five-star rating and positive review. We need it. It really helps the podcast grow. The Brown Print is a Gallery Media Group original production.